Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Roland Marullo. He's the author of several books. His most recent, The Delight of Being Ordinary, A Road Trip with the Pope and the Dalai Lama, is a playful, eloquent, and life-affirming novel about the world's two holiest men teaming up for an unsanctioned road trip through the Italian countryside where they rediscover the everyday joys and challenges of ordinary life. It's a great book and Roland and I had a great conversation about it. I give you Roland Marolo. Roland, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here, Scott. You've written a number of books, and most recently, The Delight of Being Ordinary, A Road Trip with the Pope and the Dalai Lama. This is a really fun book. I mean, as I'm reading it, I was reading it, I was trying to picture like the movie version. <laughs> it was such a fun read. And you know, the premise is that you have the current Pope, Pope Francis, and the Dalai Lama decide they both need to get away from it all and wind up planning much to the you know, frustration at points of the Pope's cousin, who's like one of his chief advisors, uh, playing this sort of secret getaway across the Italian countryside. <laughs> so when you're writing this book, I'm wondering how much, you know, how, did you have to do a lot of research about the, the about the Vatican? Because, I mean, it, it, it has a feel of someone that's like an insider of how this would kind of come off. I mean, how did you, how did you go about researching the book? I'm a little bit lazy with the research, uh, so what I do is write it first and research it later and then go back and fix what I have to fix. I've been to Italy 12 times, 11 or 12 times, so the Italian countryside was something I didn't really have to research, but the Vatican buildings and where the Pope sleeps and how you might get out of the Vatican and that, I did, I did research that. Yeah, and you acknowledge that, hey, like, I, I took some artistic license with the personalities involved. But I mean, you know, it's interesting that as they as they get on the countryside, a lot of these stories you tell, I mean, there's this one story where Francis, in, where Francis the Dalai Lama, his cousin and, and his cousin's kind of estranged wife, uh, are, they come upon these prostitutes. <laughs> and in disguise, the Pope approaches them and you know, his cousin's thinking, I don't know, maybe he's going to try to lead them to accept Christ as a savior or something. And he just says, we want to share lunch with you. Yeah. And I just, that's exactly the kind of thing I, as I was reading, it, I thought these are, these feel like the stories we read about the Pope. Yeah. I think part of that comes from, I was, uh, I grew up devout Roman Catholic and I was really steeped in Bible readings every day. And there's a, there's a, um, place in the Bible where Jesus encounters a prostitute, you know. And also, if you drive the roads of Italy, which I've done, I don't know, probably 10,000 miles, you're constantly seeing prostitutes by the side of the road in these little pullouts. Sometimes they have a mini camper, and they're there, oftentimes African women, sometimes Eastern European women, and they have skimpy outfits on, and they're waving to you and blowing kisses at the car. So, I think all that came together for me. And also, I feel like the beautiful thing about this Pope and this Dalai Lama is that they they put your humanity first and your religion second. And I feel like they actually would not try to convert her to anything, but just have lunch with her and treat her as a human being, which probably most of her clients don't quite do. Yeah. And, you know, this is 
what we face a lot of times in the modern world, right? Like Mar- Martin Buber talks about, we all want I-thou relationships, right? Where people see us for who we really are. But so often in the modern world, we, yeah, we not just with prostitutes, but with colleagues, peers, even, we, we relate in this I-it relationship, right? Where we treat people like objects and not like subjects. You're referencing one of my all-time favorite books. Buber's fantastic. Yeah, that's a brilliant book. It's very difficult called I and Now, but what you just said is exactly true. We relate to people so often, especially if we're in a hurry or we're stressed out, we relate to them as an it, as someone who gives us something we need, who does something for us, whether it's a prostitute or somebody selling us a slice of pizza. You know, we don't acknowledge their full humanity. And it's, um, I think enlightened, enlightened people do that. They, they address every person as another I, as Martin Buber would say, or as a Tao. One of the things I, I was thinking about too, as I, as I read the book was, you know, I was thinking about Fowler's faith development where, where he kind of, it's kind of, he's kind of, I guess, working off of Kohlberg's moral psychology development theory stuff. And, and Fowler thinks that a healthy sort of psychological faith development is you kind of move from early on in childhood and adolescence to sort of black and white concreteness to an openness to universalism, ambiguity, hold, holding things in tension. And, and yet you, it doesn't mean you leave your tradition. And, and the way that sort of universal outlook is looks different for, say, a Mormon or a Muslim or a Christian or a Buddhist. But you do move towards greater openness and seeing connections and a tolerance for mystery and ambiguity. As I was reading, the way you characterize the Pope and the Dalai Lama are people that are very rooted in their tradition and yet have become very mature about it and hold are able to sort of be these religious figures who are titular heads and yet also seem to hold the faith, be able to hold their faith loosely in the best way, more than some of the adherents can. <laughs> I think that's why I wrote this book, Scott. It's, I think, um, you know, they're not perfect people, but they're highly unusual beings who happen to be on earth at the same time, who happen to be the heads of really gigantic religion. I mean, we're talking billions of people and they have those qualities that you just described. And, and I did take some liberties. I had to, in order to make them personalities in the book, I had to have them say things that I didn't know they have said or would say. But also, I did do a lot of research and and read what they have said. And what both of them have said, even in the epigraphs, is that, you know, they, the Dalai Lama says, my religion is kindness. The Pope says an atheist can go to heaven. You know, that's not typical for those kinds of people to say those things. And I think what another thing that comes to mind when you were saying what you just said is the Zen, Zen monks who say, say yes to everything, which is really impossible. You know, you get cancer, you say, okay, I have cancer, I'm going to deal with it. You know, that's a very high level of living. But I do think the Pope and Dalai Lama try to do that. They try to be completely open in a in a deeply psychological way. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because like any good story, right, you, there's, you know, conflict and tensions or else you don't have a story. But so I see these couple tensions. One is between uh, Paolo, the Pope's cousin, and his estranged wife. You know, they never formally got divorced, right? They're, they're Italians, but they're kind of, you know, they live separately and, you know, they've had a passionate love marriage and then it's kind of cooled off. And so there's tension there. There's also running tension between the modern world and traditional faith. You know, that this, the one place where I see the least tension 
is in the relationship between the Pope and the Dalai Lama. <laughs> and he, even, yeah. they, even they individually struggle with this modern world and faith tension, but they don't struggle. There's not much tension between them. Like these two old guys uh, just seem so relaxed and at home with each other. Was that, I mean, did, were you thinking of that as you wrote the book? I mean, of that, because their, their relationship is so warm and relaxing. I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't do that and make that uh, contrast on purpose, but I have for the last 35 or 40 years read across the religious spectrum and, and I just read everything I can get my hands on. And what's fascinating to me is that the mystics of every religion seem to be saying almost exactly the same thing. They, they'll use different words. But when you get to the level of like the parish priest or a more local level, then rules come into play. And when the rules come into play, there's a divisiveness that happens. But at the level of the mystics, the really deeply evolved, I would say, spiritual beings, there really isn't much conflict. They, 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 I feel like they've seen or experienced either the same thing or something very similar. And they're beyond fighting with people. Yeah, and what's interesting is that what I noticed too in the dial in the dialogues, which is a very dialogue-driven novel, and these great conversations, is that oftentimes Rosa, who is not a practicing Catholic, not you know, is not observant, and she asks great questions, which the Dalai Lama and the Pope are incredibly interested in. They're very patient with it, it, you know, they're very conciliatory about you know the mysteries of faith and the complexity of the human condition. It's Paolo, who's the sort of religious establishment guy who seems to have the least patience for the whole thing. <laughs> it almost seems like his logistical impatience where, hey, how, how the hell am I going to get my cousin out of here? Now I'm going to get in trouble. Like, oh, I'm never going to live this time. Also seems to be like a, a, a picture of his general anxiety about life and love and faith. I mean, he, he's the person that strikes me as least comfortable in his own skin in the book. Absolutely true. And I think one one of the ways you could look at the book is is as a story of Paolo's spiritual evolution. And it's not just the Pope or the Dalai Lama who help him with that evolution. It's his wife, who, as you say, is not religious in the usual sense, but really is a deeply thoughtful, good human being. And she pushes him. And by the end of the book, at the very end, he makes a real transformation. The last, the, the last scene or the next to the last scene where they're in the bond together, I won't give it away, but um, he makes a step in his own spiritual life that's really a huge step. Yeah, it's interesting because I think of that, that I think of the Empire Strikes Back when Luke is training with Yoda and Yoda's like, Luke Skywalker, you're never here. You're always somewhere else. Yeah. But yeah. that seems to be Paolo. Like Rosa, the Pope and the Dalai Lama, they're always present where they are. Yeah. You know, they're present to the moment. Like they're not, you don't fit where, Paolo really has a tough time being present in the moment. Like, you know, like whether it's anxiety or, you know, frustration or his own calculating or his own, he just, he never seems, it seems to be a constant struggle. And I wonder if he's not this sort of archetypical sort of late modern person, right? I mean, yeah. that's probably where we all struggle, right? Whether religious or irreligious to actually just be present where we are. You just took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say he's the most typically modern person out of the four of them. And I, uh, originally I had him and the Pope. I had that relationship, him and the Pope, um, and I, and then the Dalai Lama. And then Rosa was, was kind of an afterthought, but I think Rosa really became maybe the most important character in the book. And um, 
And she's a real contrast to Paolo. Paolo's cerebral, he's mental, he's neurotic. Rosa's all hot, you know, and it, it's partly because she's from Naples. She's Neapolitan. And the people in Naples, I was in Naples a year ago this week. And one guy said to me out on the street, some guy was sweeping the sidewalk in front of his bar. And I started a conversation with him. And he said, you know, the northerners make fun of us. He said, but if there was someone lying on the sidewalk here, they'd step over that person and go go on their way to work. We'd pick that person up, we'd put him in a chair, we'd bring him a coffee, we'd make sure they were okay. And and he said, but they, but the northerners make fun of us. And that, you know, I had written Rosa before. Actually, no, that's not true. I wrote Rosa after that conversation. So I think that was in my mind too, that she's a Neapolitan, she's emotional, she's real hot person. And Paolo's too much of a mind person. I think he's a little off balance in that direction. Yeah, he self-describes his people from the the northern Italy, Germanic, rational. Yeah, right. I pictured, I pictured a you know they said Immanuel Kant. You could set your watch by his walks. The same every time, same day, same time of day, right? Yeah, yeah through Colbert right. or whatever. Except I pictured yeah. you know that kind of of a character. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcasts, projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Kress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Michael Butera, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Andrew Stravitz, and Jennifer Underwood. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. There's this uh, guy I've been reading who's um, a Catholic priest and a professor, Tomas Halik, but he grew up in the Czech Republic and was an undercover priest. I, mean, I had to go to undercover seminary when the Iron Curtain, before the Iron Curtain fell, and got to know John Paul II. He was a very interesting guy, but he's, he's one of the best, I think, theological writers right now. But he says that his, what, he has this great book called Patience with God, and he says that, you know, that he sees atheism and fundamentalism as forms of impatient faith mm. uh, that can't tolerate mystery. Mm. And that deep faith is patient. Uh, it has this ultimate patience, even with God. Uh, uh, they have to learn that, you know, that, uh, which is a very interesting kind of, kind of things that make patience. But, but that's the other thing that as I was reading is, Paolo is interesting because that's always what he's struggling with is patience. I mean, uh, the, you know, whereas, you know, Rosa, the Dalai Lama and the Pope all have like 
this strange combination of passion and patience. Like they can be passionate and delight in the moment. And yet also they, they can kind of just let life play out <laughs> or, or sounds wound tight <laughs> and can't let anything play out. Yeah. I, I like, um, I like the yin yang symbol. Yeah. And I like that whole idea of, of balance. You know, you, I think you have to try in, in life, but you can't do everything. You have to also just let certain things be and, Different people strike that balance differently, and Paolo is not particularly good at striking that balance. If his yin-yang symbol would be way lopsided to the trying side, the worrying side, the I have to do this, I have to fix this side, and there wouldn't be enough of the just, you know, let's go with the flow side. Yeah, his yin-yang stri- would strike me as square. <laughs> no, that's, <laughs> that's, <funny. laughs> yeah. that's really funny. So I wonder, but, and yet it's interesting though, because he's a very sympathetic character. I mean, like if you can't see yourself in him, it's, it's always my, I, I'm always fascinated when people go to the church and read the uh, stories of the Bible. I'm thinking if you're identifying too much with Jesus, there's something wrong. Like, you know, or if you're, you know, usually I, I think the biblical stories are meant to have us identify with the screw ups, uh, you know, with the people that aren't getting it as opposed to the people that are. And that's, What's great about Paul as a character, because if you can't see yourself in him, you're, you either aren't a late modern person <laughs> or you're just self-deceived, de- right? Because most yeah. of us probably on, our given, on any given day are much more like Paolo than any of the other main characters. It's, it's almost impossible to live in the modern world and not, not have a lot of that going on. I mean, you can't. It's it's nice to try to live in the moment. I think it's essential to try to live in the moment, but you also have to plan in so many different ways. You know, I was in the Peace Corps in Micronesia. I was on a tiny little isolated atoll, and the people really lived day to day. I mean, mostly there were no refrigerators. There was no electricity for one small example. They had to go get their food every single day. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to put money in the bank so that I can buy food next month. It was... I'm going to go fishing today so I can eat tonight. And as a result of that, they were just forced to live in the moment to an extent that we really, it's, I would say, impossible for us to do that. We can move in that direction and we can try, but it's it's just so difficult in our life where you have to earn money, you have to pay bills, you have to have insurance, you have to have a phone, you have to repay your car. You know, it's a, it's a spiritually challenging way to live. Yeah, and it feels like, our technical progress, like the promise is that it will make life easier and more leisure, but actually it, it generally makes us work harder, right? Like we have, a, we, we think we are, our, our expectation for our own pro- productivity ratchets up or our yeah. expectation for keeping track of things on social media and the new, they, so like we, I've, it's oftentimes it seems like the, the, what does Weber call it? The iron cage of modernity. Right? <laughs> and again, yeah. I, I wouldn't want to live in any of their time. I mean, our life expectancy, yeah. the, the, I mean, it's a less, by and large, less violent, less, I mean, it's, but it comes at, there are always trade-offs, right? I think some of it is being afraid of dying, really. You know, if you look at the organization of our life, it's, and again, I'm with you. I mean, I'm, it's not like I would want to live in a, in a poorer way, but our life is structured to, maximize our pleasure, to minimize our pain, to maximize our safety, to extend our lives as long as possible. That's a great luxury that people haven't really had over the millennia. And it comes at a price. You're right. You know, it's a, it's a spiritual price. I think uh, Merton said, 
modern man believes that not even a god could love him. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, it's not in- even god, yeah. Hmm. it's interesting too because I I look at like Pilate's relationship with his estranged wife. It, I mean, it seems like the almost like a parable or an allegory for the modern person's estrangement from things like faith, hope, and love, you know, <laughs> and beauty. Yeah. I mean, it's it's this. And yeah, he doesn't live a bad life. I mean, you look at Pilate, he, he gets to be the assistant to his cousin, the Pope, who's a fantastic person. And he, I mean, it's not like he's, he's, a, it's not like he's miserable, you know, and yet no. his life is characterized by a kind of lack of wholeness that he's aware of. I mean, it eludes him and yet he's aware of it. I think we're all a little bit that way to, to a greater or lesser extent. You know, there's a, there's a way in which we're not whole. And, and it's, you know, as you said, we're not evil. The way we live is not intrinsically a bad way to live. Most people I know try to do the best they can. Many people I know are really, really good people. But there's something about the, the macro, the structure of the way we live, that's a spiritual challenge. It's really difficult to be whole in this society. And I think some of it is, you know, I don't, I don't want to be grim about it. I'm not a grim person. It's a funny book, I think. Um, I think I'm a funny person for the most part. I make a lot of jokes, but some of it is coming to terms with the real fact that you could die in the next second. And so could I. And we don't want to believe that. And, and the whole modern structure conspires to help us pretend that that's not true when in fact it actually is true. Yeah. And I think what's interesting about, again, you know, Three of the four main characters, especially the Pope and the Dalai Lama, but I think Rose is like this too. They're pretty comfortable with their own finitude. Like they wear their finitude pretty well, you know. And and that, I mean, that is a hard thing, right? Especially with when we're so protected from some of the things which, for millennia, have been such looming threats to human existence that we forget how fragile life is. Yeah, if you lived, you know. A thousand years ago, you would have wild animals outside the door that could kill you. If there was a bad storm, a snowstorm, you might not survive. You know, we don't, that worry, that intense anxiety has been dulled a little bit or taken away a little bit. But behind that, in the background, I think we all know how fragile we are, to quote Sting, you know, and that you could walk out the door. I could walk out the door today and get hit by a car or I could have a heart attack or, you know, and to me, that's not that's not a morose way of looking at life at all. It's just the reality. And it's like, if you don't deal with that, you're going to have this bubbling anxiety at some level of your consciousness. And if you deal with it, you can be at peace. Like, okay, I could have a heart attack while I'm talking to you. That's okay. You know, I like the way I've lived my life and I'm at peace with that. Hmm. You mentioned earlier that you grew up as a traditional Roman Catholic that was observant. I mean, what, what is your own spirituality like now? Are you still in that tradition or is that, I mean, how would you self-describe now? Yeah, I'm definitely not in that tradition. I'm not an angry ex-Catholic, but it's just, um, I took my, I have two girls and I took my older girl to midnight mass, which was the only time I went to church in the last year on Christmas. And we went to mass and we went across the street and had a cup of coffee afterwards. And I said, what did you think? And she said, I liked it, dad but they're trying to make you feel bad about yourself. And I thought that was a really brilliant comment because it was, you know, the liturgy in fact has just been changed from I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner to I'm a grievous sinner. 
like a really, really bad sinner. To me, I don't know. It's just not the way I want to look at the world. So I've really moved away from that since my 20s. And um, I meditate a lot, and it's a mixed meditation. So I'll say a Hail Mary at the beginning and a Protestant Our Father at the beginning and then do a Buddhist, like a Dzogchen Tibetan Buddhist meditation, which is very simple, and then a finish with a little verbal prayer. So that's a, that's a mixed bag, and I think that meditation session pretty much describes me, that I'm, I'm spiritual, but I'm really not connected to any – I'm a real cafeteria faith kind of person, and I don't feel bad about that at all. I take, I take what I love from different traditions and try to integrate that into the way I live. So how did you get from the traditional upbringing to that place? I mean, were there a couple steps on the journey that were pivotal that yeah. got you from 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 there to here? A couple of big steps. First, I started to read Thomas Merton, who really, you know, he was a Catholic monk, but he was very invested in the the wisdom of the East. And I think in a certain way, he gave me permission to be Catholic and to be interested in Buddhism, especially Hinduism and, and other forms of other ways of looking at the world. That was step one. And step two was the strangest step. I took Russian in high school and college, and I ended up working in the Soviet Union in 1977. And a friend of mine, an American who was working there, was reading Ram Das, And I think he was reading... Uh, the only dance there is, maybe. And I and, and on the cover, there was a picture. I, I believe it was a picture of a Hindu goddess. And that kind of thing where I grew up was just weird. You know, you'd, you'd see these images from the East. And when I was a kid, that was, it was just very, very odd. And I would run the other way. But because I was friends with this guy, I said, what do you, you know, what's the book about? He said, yeah, take and read it. And I read it. And, and Ram Das was another bridge, I think, between the um, the West and the East and a very important one for me. And once, once I crossed that bridge, all bets were off and I just started to read, you know, uh, across the spectrum. And when you look out as somebody who's, who writes books with religious and spiritual themes, you know, connected to novels, when you look out at the American religious landscape, as someone that's been on a significant journey, what do you, what do you see? I, in a literary landscape? Just, I'm just thinking, like in the in this in general spirituality. I mean, are you? Does the spirituality of contemporary Americans is it make you hopeful for where we're going together as societies? I mean, are we? Do we need a little more of a uh, a journey like your central character here, where we need? Do we need a little more spiritual and central vacations? Or <laughs> yeah, I I respect. You know, I have a lot of family members who are still devout Catholics, and I. I respect them because of the way they live. And I don't, I try not to judge other people's uh, spiritual path unless it's hurtful to somebody, unless it's hateful. Um, I can't say the American scene makes me particularly optimistic. I think, I think Christianity has been perverted in a lot of circles now and become like the Pharisees, extremely judgmental and hateful Pe people who call themselves Christians. It just drives me crazy. And I, I keep saying they're so-called Christians, you know. Um, but at, and at the at the same time, though, I think a lot of people have turned away from the strict religious upbringing of their tradition or their youth. They don't go to church. They don't go to synagogue. They don't go to temple. They um, 
But at the same time, there is an urge in them for something that has to do with spirituality. And I feel like we're in a transition period and that there will be a movement towards something that's less rigid, but more real. So in that way, I'm a little bit optimistic. Yeah, I mean, and that's, it is interesting that what seems to be to come off most clearly about the the spirituality and person of Jesus is this non-judgmentalism, right? Absolutely. So, I mean, maybe this is why people are drawn to Pope Francis right now. I think that's absolutely the case. If you really look at the Bible, to me, Jesus is is anti-rules. Even when they say, like, what are the most important commandments? He kind of fudged the answer. He said, look, love God and love a neighbor as yourself and forget the rest of it, basically, is what he said. And, you know, the everyone's stoning the woman caught in adultery. He says, don't do that. You know, his whole thing is everyone says, don't heal people on the set. Don't do anything on the Sabbath. He heals somebody on the Sabbath. You know, everything he does is really against the rigid rules and in favor of the rule of love. And then in this country, we not obviously not all Christians, but the people, the loudest Christians, I would say, are all about rules and they're not about love. It's like, you know, you can't use birth control. That's the rule. Well, I mean, if you look at it lovingly, don't, doesn't a, a husband and wife, don't they want to have sex? Isn't that part of a loving relationship? If they're poor, especially, shouldn't they be able to do that without worrying about having more children? You know, I mean, it's the whole thing is a little bit upside down to me. Do you imagine, I mean, do you ever think, gosh, Maybe somebody will give this now novel to the Pope. <laughs> I actually, it's funny. I actually know two people. I have two fans of mine who mailed a copy each to the Pope and the Dalai Lama. And I have a friend whose brother is a priest at the Vatican. And I know that that priest, he wrote me, he said, I, I gave the book to, I gave the light of being ordinary to the Pope's, I don't know what, assistant or something. And I hope he reads it. You know, I don't, I, I think the Pope has better things to do than read my book, but I do know the brother of the Dalai Lama read uh, Breakfast with Buddha, one of my other books, because I know somebody who was there and saw one of the Dalai Lama's brothers reading that. So that was kind of cool. But I don't have any illusions that those two guys are going to spend their valuable time reading what I wrote. It would be nice, but I don't think that's going to happen. Well, I mean, you know, if there are people that, and it's pretty believable to me that they delight in the ordinary. I, I could I could imagine them reading your book. <laughs> I hope you're right. I hope you're right. And I, I think I had a fight for that title. The publisher was a little bit against that title. They thought it sounded too much like a self-help book, but I do think it's the perfect title and they do delight in, I think, the ordinariness of life. And that's a, to me, that's like number one spiritual rule. If you can't take delight in eating a meal or having a conversation or watching a bird fly across the sky, then I feel like you have some work to do. Yeah. And and, and some of that, right, is learning to love your limits, right? That you're circumscribed. You're kind of, this is you, you, you learn where you end and the world begins and and you're kind of, and that's it. Again, you, you, you present these two great spiritual figures is, it's very conscious of their limitations. And yet the consciousness of their limitations doesn't feel limiting. (laughs) It actually feels liberating. I think of it as, uh, I think the basis of sin, which is not a word I like to use, but um, I don't know what else to use in instead, is taking things for granted. Like you take for granted that you're alive, you're breathing, your circulatory system is working a particular way, 
you're on this ball of stone in the middle of emptiness that's spinning. It's just the right distance away from the sun. And we just kind of take that. We're born and for maybe a little bit, it's unusual. And then all of a sudden we take it for granted and we go looking for something to make our life better or to hurt somebody or to separate us from somebody else instead of just sitting in the magnificence of that mystery. That's something we just, I, I feel like speaking for myself, I try to spend time doing that. And I feel like I should spend more time just appreciating the fact of being alive. Well, for people that want to learn to appreciate that, your book is a great place to start. Um, thanks for writing it and for spending some time talking to me about it. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Oh, me too. Thanks. Pleasure is all mine. Take care, Scott. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Roland for being on the podcast. Do check out his novel, The Delight of Being Ordinary. It's a great read. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.